You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Could David Cameron turn his country into a global laughing stock twice in one career? We're about to find out. How much longer can Israel count on the patience of its allies? And should more of us be sleeping on the job? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Patricia Cohen and Charles Hecker will discuss the day's big stories and we'll visit a new exhibition reflecting on Japan's manga tradition. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, currently on leave writing a book about Russian and international business, or so he keeps telling us, and by Patricia Cohen, the global economics correspondent at the New York Times. Hello to you both. Hello there. Good evening. Uh, Charles, you have recently been, as I understand it, instead of working on your book about Russian and international (laughs) business, uh, attending some sort of school reunion. Anything to avoid working on the manuscript, Andrew. Um, (laughs) Actually, this was a little bit of work and pleasure. I was in the other Cambridge, the one in Massachusetts, uh, for the 75th anniversary of the Russian Research Center at Harvard University. It's These days it's called the Davis Center, but it is the oldest think tank for Russian studies in the U.S., and they had a very, very big birthday party. And, and to be clear, your association with it doesn't span its entire existence? Uh, no. Um, I was there for a few years in the 1980s getting a master's degree and um, am rapidly fading into the old guard <laughs> of the graduate school experience. I mean, what goes on at a gathering of Russia boffins like that? I mean, it's not like you've a shortage of material at this no. point. No, you're absolutely right. But you know what? It was a fairly interesting thing because the day, the weekend was filled with seminars and roundtables and presentations and discussions. And I have to tell you, with the greatest of respect, I mean, it was a fantastic weekend, but the historians and the political scientists struggled a little bit, I think, to get their minds around what's going on in Russia right now and explaining Ukraine, explaining Putin, explaining the future. Um, you know, these are some of the biggest brains in, in, in Russia thinking, and it's getting harder and harder to come up with a consistent line. Uh, I mean, it has certainly been something we have noticed here, talking to some of the world's foremost Russia boffins over the last year and a half. Um, And I do always admire Charles, that expert who will occasionally, every so often, respond to a question by just going, I have no earthly idea. Um, And and a lot of them don't. Um, Patricia, you, as I understand it, have recently returned from an at least partially culinary expedition across the channel. I was going to say it was not nearly as cerebral as uh, Charles's venture, but um, I was in Paris and I uh, just by chance went to a restaurant that Le Figaro says has the best beef bourguignon in Paris. That, that's the kind of thing a French newspaper says when it's trying to start a fight though, right? But uh, Well, maybe, but I have to say it was heavenly. And I tried to reproduce it this weekend in my kitchen. And one of my guests who actually has eaten at that restaurant <laughs> very kindly said it was the best beef bourguignon in Camden. So I'll just take that. Is this restaurant especially fancy? No. It's not especially no, it's fancy, neighbor, and yet... kind of a neighborhood bistro. Was it monstrously expensive? No. 
Okay, don't tell anybody what it's called, though, because otherwise, <laughs>、exactly. by the time I get there,、uh, it will be.、Um, we will start here in the UK. Anybody, obviously, who's really interested, can look it up in Le Figaro themselves.、Uh, but we will start in the UK, and heartwarmingly, it would appear that committing the greatest unforced error in British political history, tanking the national economy, and causing a world to regard your country with a mixture of mockery and pity, need be no impediment to aspiration of high political office. In a re. Shuffle of his cabinet earlier today, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak decided that not one of his 349 fellow Conservative MPs was fit to be allowed out in the world, and instead sent for former Prime Minister David Cameron, inadvertent midwife of Brexit, who is to be hastily ennobled and installed as Foreign Secretary. Charles, was this what you guys had a revolution over?、Uh, I think there's going to be a revolution <laughs> you know, coming fairly shortly, either within the Conservative Party or. Certainly, at the next general election, Andrew, don't forget Rishi Sunak, who just brought back a prime minister who resigned in complete disgrace、mm-hmm. in 2016. Rishi Sunak is the change candidate、mm-hmm. in British politics.、Um, you know, I think you're absolutely right in your introduction. The Conservative Party has flat out run out of people,、uh, and they're going backwards now. Um, and digging fairly deep、uh, for a foreign minister, I think what was really interesting is that you know the, the individual who set a bomb underneath British foreign policy by allowing the referendum on Brexit、um, is now going to try to sell Britain around the world.、Uh, number one, number two. David Cameron was involved in one of the greatest ethical lapses、mm-hmm. in recent political history, and that was via his lobbying, to put it politely, on behalf of Greensill Capital.、Um, he tried to get them COVID funding. He tried to get them loans.、Um, he tried to bail out, or at least continue to foster. What has turned out to be a fairly elaborate Ponzi scheme, for lack of a better expression, and has been under, under investigation at the Serious Fraud Office since 2021.、Um, and t h i s is all summed up by、um, a great welcome back to David Cameron from Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. <laughs> um, and what does this tell you?、Uh, Mark Rutte says, "Welcome back." He himself will be out of a job in two weeks. <laughs>、um, Patricia, it, it is easy to mock,、uh, as we have already demonstrated. But is it seriously that bad an idea? Because, as, as Charles hints, we are here running up against one of the limitations of the Westminster system. The convention of which is that the cabinet should be mostly assembled from sitting members of Parliament. And when any one party gets, what are we now, thirteen years? Into power, you do run up against a problem that quite a lot of your MPs are too old, too mad, too silly, too drunk,、uh, too retired, too dead, and you 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 do start to you know you start to run out of people with whom you can fill the seats at the cabinet table.、Uh, I mean, I would say the 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 one possibly I think the only. Positive spin on this I heard today was that at least Cameron is someone, being a former prime minister, who has experience in world affairs and、mm-hmm. therefore can you know kind of command respect from other world leaders at a time obviously where there's a lot of international negotiations going on. But in terms of the Conservative Party, it seems to me, and, and Charles, I you know you 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 put it very aptly, but it, it just. It seems to me a complete example of the party just flailing around a last-ditch effort that they cannot figure out what to do or how to do it. And I'm 
thinking perhaps Sunak is thinking this is kind of a pivot back to the center. Mm-hmm. Um, he's clearly willing to uh, anger uh, the the right wing of the party by mm-hmm. getting rid of Suella Braverman and and hoping to kind of get that that middle space. But um, it to me it just shows really desperation and and that they're just completely out of ideas and and as 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 you put it what is cameron's legacy i mean brexit and austerity i mean charles it it has been or if it hasn't been suggested it's about to be that this is not so much a reshuffle of cabinet posts as a rearrangement of deck chairs but but nevertheless is it necessarily from sunak's point of view quite as daft as it looks as as patricia says he has sacked unceremoniously the home secretary um and you know out and out headbanger suella braverman there wasn't even the customary exchange of passive aggressive faux courteous letters he phoned her up and told her she was fired. Uh, he has kept James Cleverly, the former foreign secretary, as as home secretary. And James Cleverly does get reasonably good reviews as a, a relatively uh, sensible holder of cabinet office. Is this Sunak thinking that maybe the way forward, or there may be at least a way that I get merely beaten at the next election rather than absolutely hosed is to try and decrank the party and look a bit more like the stolid, sensible Conservative Party of of yore. So the kindest thing that people have been saying this evening and, and this afternoon about the reshuffle is that he's put a few people in place that have a track record of achievement. Um, and he includes... Um, David Cameron in, in that group, um, and that the ideologues and the headbangers, as you've put it, and, and the people who are driven by the extreme right wing of the conservative party have been shuffled off until the leadership contest resurfaces on the eve of, of the next general election, perhaps. Um, spare a thought for poor James Cleverly. I mean, did you see the video of him coming out of number 10 like somebody had just sort of run over his dog or, or, or something oh, no, it's like a, that? No, it is a famously dreadful job, Home Secretary. You are the minister in charge of being blamed for absolutely everything. Well, so here's a guy who, um, you know, by and large has been viewed as a fairly effective foreign minister, and, and he spent his term so far flying all around the world, meeting heads of state and meeting other very glamorous foreign ministers. I mean, that and sounds like quite good fun. It's great fun. And he's going to spend the rest of his year in Dover. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, he still holds one of the great offices of state, uh, but he's been demoted. Uh, effectively, yes. Uh, there is one personage obviously unimpressed with David Cameron's uh, elevation to the Foreign Office. And this is the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, who had this to say earlier. This is not the first time in recent years that a cabinet minister has been appointed in the House of Lords, but given the gravity of the current international situation, it is especially important that this House is able to scrutinise the work of the former Commonwealth and Development Office effectively. Uh, Patricia, Sir Lindsay is correct in that it is occasionally the case that ministers are recruited from the Lords, not the Commons. But certainly in recent years, it has, recent decades, in fact, the convention has been that the holders of the great offices of state uh, should be actual MPs. The last Lord who served as Foreign Secretary was Lord Carrington, who resigned in embarrassment, really, in 1982 over the invasion of the Falklands. So there's a there's a happy precedent for us. Uh, but does Sir Lindsay have a point there that having a foreign secretary who can't come to the House of Commons does make scrutiny more difficult? I mean, the system to me uh, is 
both crazy, but also I kind of see the logic for it. Mm. Because number one, as you said before, particularly for parties in power for 13 years, that uh, and, and particularly where there doesn't seem to be a new generation of leadership that's coming up, it's kind of you, you, you run out of people. And certainly for a job like the foreign secretary, where you do want some level of expertise. And I could see, even though I feel bad for poor James Cleverly, it's a smart move to put him in the Home Secretary, given how kind of explosive that job has been under Suella Braverman. Um, I mean, to me, it makes sense, which is, uh, and I, I hate to hold the U.S. political system up for anything at this point, <laughs> um, but uh, at least the idea of the you know, and that's the difference in having a separation between the executive and the mm-hmm. legislator, uh, the legislative body, is that the president can assemble his cabinet from people anywhere who he thinks are the best suited to the job. And so, you know, it does give you a much larger remit in terms of finding somebody who you think actually is going to do the job well. Well, let's move along to one of the subjects shortly to occupy the attention of the incoming Foreign Secretary, Israel's ongoing conflict with Hamas. Perhaps David Cameron could suggest a referendum. The news from within Gaza grows ever more grim, latest reports suggesting that the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City is no longer functional. Israel insists, not entirely implausibly, that a major Hamas command centre is located beneath it. Meanwhile, even Israel has acknowledged that its diplomatic cover for the on slot is fraying. Over the weekend, President Emmanuel Macron of France came out unequivocally for a ceasefire. Uh, Patricia Macron has since walked those remarks back somewhat, but was he wrong? I mean, the, you know, I mean, part of the problem here is that this this entire subject is so uh, just so explosive uh, that even, every, even at the best of times, and this is at, not that right. And that so that every word, but even it, it, just having a conversation about it and opening a dialogue about it is is very difficult, and to do it publicly, particularly because every word has taken on this meaning. Mm-hmm. So a ceasefire, given the horrible, you know, uh, carnage that we're seeing in Gaza now, uh, it makes sense. On the other hand. From the Israeli government's perspective, there's still 240 hostages mm-hmm. um, that are being held by Hamas. So the question is, okay, a ceasefire, but under what conditions? And I think that uh, governments in the West in particular, particularly those that have dealt with acts of terrorism, are very conscious of the not wanting to kind of cut off options whether they're stupid options or not, mm. but in terms of their response to uh, a situation where they may have citizens, their own citizens, who are taken hostage. Uh, Charles, Israel's line on this, and it is obviously somewhat ingenuous, but nonetheless is that Hamas can have a ceasefire the very minute they want one by simply releasing all the hostages and coming out with their hands up, which I I think we all understand is not going to happen. But that being the case, or that not going to happen being the case, do we yet entirely understand what Israel thinks its endgame is, what it is actually trying to accomplish here? 
Um, no, I don't think we do. And that's for a number of reasons. And I think the most prominent among them is that the Israeli government isn't necessarily speaking with one voice. Mm. Um, and the one voice that it does speak with um, at the moment has very little legitimacy. Um, and that is that the Israeli public now in increasing numbers, I mean, really like never before, is calling for Netanyahu to step down from the prime minister's office, um, number one. Um, number two, his cabinet um, has sort of made statements and reversed them and made conflicting statements. It first said that when the invasion of Gaza was finished, it was going to turn its back and walk away forever. It more recently has said that it wants to stay and occupy and run Gaza to keep the Palestinian administration out. Um, at one point, they said they wanted to throw a tactical nuclear weapon onto Gaza. Um, and that, that minister was, was briefly suspended um, from the cabinet. And so... Um, you know, we don't know, and I don't think the Israeli government entirely knows what this next step is and what happens when the war is over, ceasefire or not. It is the case, Patricia, that there is a, a large body of Western opinion which would, uh, you know, think badly of what Israel did, whatever Israel did, and would regard any Israel response uh, as over the top, disproportionate, etc., etc., etc. But it doesn't help Israel's cause, does it, that this does look more and more like just a punitive, vindictive rampage, if, at least if Israel cannot find a way to communicate it better than that? I mean, I do think it's it's fair to say that um, there is a clock ticking, uh, not only because of what's happened inside of mm. Israel and Gaza proper, but because of the reaction of the world. And it's, I do think, and, and it's hard for me to see anything forward other than despair at the moment, but I, I agree with Charles. There's, there doesn't seem to be any recognizable endgame to this, how this is, is going to go. At the same time, though, Israel's uh, maneuver space is, is also closing in because world opinion Having said mm. that, I think Israel, uh, perhaps much more than other countries, although we've certainly seen other countries uh, ignore world opinion, is is very determined to do what uh, at least the government sees in its own interest. And when I say its own interest, I literally mean surviving in power and uh, in not Netanyahu's case, staying out of jail Um and so that they're going, uh, you know, they have a high tolerance for criticism. Well, indeed. So, I mean, Charles, their, their narrow objective, which, as they keep saying, is the, the destruction and scattering of Hamas and an end to the organisation as a political or military force, that is a perfectly reasonable objective for Israel to harbour in and of itself. And anybody who was governing Israel would want and indeed should want to accomplish that, especially after what happened on October the 7th. But Going back to Patricia's point about the clock ticking, even the foreign minister, Eli Cohen, has acknowledged that he thinks that Israel can maybe plough on for two or three more weeks before they run completely out of diplomatic cover. We also saw, I think, significantly over the weekend, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, saying far too many Palestinians have been killed. And he is well aware of, you know, how very seriously every word he says uh, is being weighed. But they are not going to accomplish that objective of destroying Hamas in two or three weeks. No, I think that's part of the problem that, you know, the goal may be narrow and it may be reasonable, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. Mm. And, and Israel can't stop short 
of however you want to define it, the, the sort of destruction or liquidation of Hamas. And if it, if it were to agree to anything that leaves any sort of bits and pieces of Hamas intact, the military operation and all of the tragedy that's accompanied it would be seen as a failure. Um, and, and, and moreover, would allow Hamas the time to perhaps regroup and, and attack Israel again. Um, and, and so they have to pursue this to some sort of logical end. And that probably means, you know, penetrating the tunnels, finding the military supplies, finding the personnel, decapitating the leadership and anything short of that, whether it takes one week, two weeks or, or one month or two months. Um, they can't stop short of that. But I don't even know that that's possible. I mean, I was just reading today. First of all, we don't. We we only have a kind of, you know, <laughs> sketchy idea, kind of an of, of where uh, of the tunnel infrastructure, uh, which is as everyone at least understands or don't know the indications. It's ex- it is immense, extreme, very well supplied, and also probably booby trapped so that the moment that the Israelis try to go down there, the, the whole thing could just collapse on their heads. Um, and, you know, no matter how much of Hamas they do manage to dismantle, there will be a some, some subsequent... Hamas version, just as Hamas followed other extreme radical groups that were set on Israel's extermination. And and that's the problem, I think, in here is that you have these competing narratives that go back not only to 1948, mm-hmm. but, but let's, you know, rather than thousands of years <laughs> of history, um, where as uh, you know, this this moment in terms of the birth of Israel, which was seen as the only haven from a world that was set on genocide of the Jews, being this moment of celebration, was this moment of extreme catastrophe for mm. the Palestinians. And they each have this this kind of survival back against the wall that this this literally is keeping us from extermination. And it's very hard to kind of you know, get any discussion in with these compelling mythic, and there is mythology on both sides, narratives that are are, are controlling this dialogue. You're completely right. I mean, you're not only that, um, which I agree with completely, is the fact that that this very action right now, this very military conflict, is creating the next generation of Hamas, um, and 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 unless whether you liquidate it now or you don't liquidate it, it will grow back. Um, and Hamas doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, Hamas is part of the Iranian infiltration of the region, and whether it's Hezbollah or any of the other sort of um, subcutaneous, subterranean methods that Iran has of infiltrating. Um, all of Israel's bordering countries and enemies, um, that will carry on as well. Well, another topic likely to preoccupy incoming Foreign Secretary and today's running gag, David Cameron, is the wider West's relationship with China. Cameron, of course, brings to bear on this the considerable expertise he acquired during his post-ignominious resignation career in shilling for an assortment of Chinese interests. It seems unlikely, nevertheless, that his views will be solicited by either party in an imminent summit between the leaders of the United States and the People's Republic. President Joe Biden will meet President Xi Jinping 
Jinping in San Francisco on Wednesday. Um, Patricia, the pair of them haven't met in person for a year or so. Is this is this a pretty big deal? I mean, I guess it always is when the leaders of China and the US meet. I mean, I think it's a particularly big deal, it, regardless of whether it's the first time between these two individuals, just given what's going on in the world. Mm. I mean, we're in this, you know, kind of really extreme period of, of crises going on. Um, and uh, even aside from the ongoing geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S., which, you know, many foreign policy analysts would say, despite all of the carnage and destruction going on in the Middle East in Ukraine is really kind of the main geopolitical confrontation and the main rivalry if you're looking at what's going on around the globe. I think both sides do have an interest in trying to ratchet down the tension level and to uh, protect and to nurture a little bit more the economic ties which have been fraying. Um, China, because basically it's it's uh, facing a period of low growth and really starting to struggle. Its real estate sector has fallen apart. And the U.S. also because China is a key provider of a lot of materials, uh, raw materials, and produced uh, things for the energy transition and other things uh, that we need. So I, I do think even though I think the larger conflict and rivalry is there, and I, I don't think that's changing, I think there is at least in the short term an interest in, in cranking down the temperature. And Charles, what do you think? There has been a general sense, I think, at least on both sides in recent months, that both sides are trying to calm things down a little bit. You know, the United States realising perhaps that it has more than enough to be dealing with presently, and China realising that the previous belligerence wasn't really buttering any parsnips. I mean, to be honest, this this is how you manage a rivalry. Mm. I mean, in the past year, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, have all been to China. That is not the sign of an irreparably damaged relationship. It's the sign of a tense relationship that both parties are engaged in managing fairly actively. Mm. Um, And one of the reasons why they're doing this is that trade between the United States and China in the past year is at a record level. There has never been more commerce between the United States and China. So in addition to, not in spite of, but in addition to all of the tension, you have $760 billion of trade between the two countries last year, and you've got $1.8 trillion of physical assets parked in each other's countries. So this is a relationship that will be tense for decades to come, perhaps. um, But for the time being, uh, you know, both sides are engaged in managing it fairly actively. If we look at the, there's obviously the crisis that well, one hopes both sides are trying to avoid, which is one over Taiwan, Patricia. But if we look at the two that the United States is currently consumed by, the one in the Middle East and the one in Ukraine, does China have the advantage that it's really, grand scheme of things, not much bothered about either of them? Well, first of all, I would disagree about that it's not much bothered by Russia and Ukraine, because clearly, actually, China has been very active in some Mm. sense of uh, supporting Russia. Um, And, you know, there was a meeting between Putin came to China. There was a meeting between the two. Um, 
and it's China has become a, a much bigger buyer of Russian goods since all the sanctions went into account. And so that has definitely been part of what has ratcheted up the tension in the first place between the United States. Um, uh Having said that, though, I think particularly now, uh, given that the Chinese economy has not bounced back as much as I think a lot of people thought, Mm -hmm. that uh, the focus is now much more, uh, Xi's focus is much is much more now on the domestic economy and and making that better. Just a final quick thought on this one, Charles. You were talking about how, well, one hopes that they are managing what is obviously always going to be a tense relationship like grown-ups and they understand each other or they're trying to understand each other. Will Xi understand, do you think, that there is you know, an election roughly this time next year and that nobody has ever lost votes in an American election by beating up on China. Will will she sort of understand that, okay, we're going to catch a fair bit of this from everybody over the next 12 months and we won't take it personally? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that probably depends on a couple of factors, Um, one of which is um, how that's going to play for Xi domestically in China. I don't think he's overly concerned with public opinion in China, but he's managing... I mean, a... he doesn't have to worry about getting reelected, obviously. No, but he's managing a fragile economy, and those sorts of things matter for his grip on control. Remember that all of these these countries, none of these countries, rather, I should say, are, are monolithic, um, and that beneath the surface there is rivalry mm-hmm. um, just beneath um, you know Xi Jinping's level. Number one. Number two is, you know, who he wants to see in the White House um, next year and, and who he thinks he can probably get along with better. And and I think that a strategic view on U.S.-China relations would probably point him towards taking it on the chin a tiny bit from Biden, letting him score a little bit of political points in the hopes that he's got a less disruptive partner in the White House going forward. Well, to Japan, where recent research has concluded, not for the first time, that the locals are not sleeping enough. More than 40% of Japanese people are somehow managing on less than six hours of shut-eye a night. As a consequence, there is quite the local industry of gadgets, devices and regimes designed to enable knackered salary people to grab 40 winks at work. Among them, the giraffe pod, a phone booth-sized apparatus in which people can allegedly catch a nap while standing up, like giraffes do. Patricia, if your place of work was to install a giraffe pod, maybe it already has, I don't know, would it appeal to you? So uh, I have to say the New York Times uh, relocated its offices uh, in gosh, I think it was 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we got lots of kind of ridiculous looking furniture that was, um, (laughs) that I noticed Uh, was... 2006, that is peak ridiculous looking furniture time. Which I noticed was part of that, the the satire that that show on the BBC. uh, (laughs) uh, And uh, I saw that a lot of the furniture that was Mm -hmm. part of that satire was in our office. And I do think we had uh, a kind of pod there with like a giant, you know, beanbag or something that that you could lie down in. I don't know that anyone actually used it for that. I think it became maybe a place where you could have a private telephone conversation, uh, given that there's, you know, very few offices in a newsroom. But just on the larger issue, I mean, I feel like I've been tired for 20 years. And... (laughs) 
if I had the ability to catch a nap sometimes, I would take it, whatever the circumstances uh, are. So why not? Uh, Charles, what about you? Are you in favour of the giraffe pod or do you see it as a dystopian manifestation of a completely dysfunctional working culture? It looks like a torture chamber. Uh, <laughs> it, it looks like, like having to sleep standing up and not just standing up, but in some incredibly contorted position while you're at it. And, and, and some of the images of, of this contraption look like they are entirely um, inconducive, if that's a word, um, it should be. To any kind of sleep, whether it's a nap or, or anything other than that. Um, I mean, like Patricia, we sort of had a nap room in our office. And also, we you know, we did a renovation around right. 2006, and they put all those sort of funny-looking sofas around. Did you get a ping-pong table and beanbags? Um, no. <laughs> We're not supposed to have that much fun at work. Um, but no one, you know, anybody who actually used the nap room sort of slinked in and, and slinked out and didn't want to be seen, you know, heaven forbid that somebody thinks that they're actually sleeping on the job. So it was a really great idea, um, but the execution kind of fell flat. See, I, I am not, by general inclination, a napper. I, I like to sleep at, at night, controversially. I don't really understand the sort of trying to sleep during the day. Do I... Do either of you regularly attempt to sleep during office hours? <laughs> well, uh, it's certainly gotten, I think, a lot easier for everyone to nap during office hours, given the fact that a lot of people are working from home now, mm -hmm. you know, so kind of who knows if you are or you're not. Uh, but, um, you know, as, as a longtime insomniac, uh, this is why I go back to sleeping, even though I agree with you, the 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 cubicle looks like a torture chamber because I, I cannot, uh, I can only sleep when I'm prone. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people, I actually know a few people who are incredibly productive who kind of take a nap in the afternoon. And uh, if that's how your body clock works, why not? Charles, what about you? I mean, I, I am incredibly envious of people who can just sleep anywhere in any circumstances. I'm especially envious of those people when I'm on an aeroplane because sleeping in those circumstances has never been one of my strong suits. Forget it. Sleeping on airplanes is, a, is an absolute, you know, it's impossible. And, and this whole notion of the power nap is is an oxymoron. I mean, there is absolutely <laughs> there is nothing powerful about being asleep. Um, and and just uh, you know, I, I tend to avoid it I, when I'm tired. I'll go for a double espresso. I'll go for some, some a bit of a sugar hit. I'll do whatever I can to to power through, if you will, because my own experience is that I actually never completely wake up from a nap, <laughs> and that I'm sort of groggy and foggy for the rest of the day. It does nothing to rejuvenate me at all. That's some proper American go-getting there, Charles. Sleep is for the weak. You heard it <laughs> here on the Monocle Daily. Uh, Patricia Cohen and Charles Hecker, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, after opening its doors earlier this year, London's Young Victoria and Albert Museum unveiled its first exhibition entitled Japan, Myths to Manga. The exhibition's aim is to take visitors, young and old, on a journey through Japan to explore how its ancient mythology has shaped art, design and technology across the centuries, celebrating Japan's beloved folklore. Monocle's Monica Lillis went to the museum in East London to find out more. One night, the man on the moon came down to earth, disguised as a beggar. He chanced upon a fox, a monkey and a rabbit and asked for some food. The fox brought in fish from a stream and the monkey brought fruit from the trees, but the rabbit could only offer grass. 
So he told the beggar to build a fire, and when it was built, threw himself onto the flames to offer himself to the man. Amazed by the rabbit's generosity, the beggar transformed back into the man on the moon and pulled the rabbit from the fire. To honor the rabbit's kindness, the man on the moon carried the rabbit back to the moon to live with him. Now, if you look at the full moon, you can see the outline of the rabbit pounding mochi on the moon. That is the story of The Rabbit in the Moon, one of Japan's most well-known folk tales. This tale is one of hundreds that are the subject of the Japan Mr. Manga exhibition at the Young V&A in London's Bethnal Green, the museum's first permanent exhibition. Japanese folklore has long been an important part of the country's tradition, with the oldest existing records of the nation's mythology dating back to 712 AD. In modern times, these ancient tales continue to influence artists and creatives alike and are the basis of much of Japan's soft power, including art, design and technology. Lead curator Katie Canales tells me more about the inspiration behind the exhibition. We hoped with this exhibition is that we would bring the brilliance of Japan into Bethnal Green and hope to convey the, not only the beauty of the Japanese landscape and its different habitats, but also to convey the, the sense of playfulness that continues throughout the ages. And the exhibition is separated into four sections. You've got uh, the sky, the sea, you've got the forest, and you've got the city. And in each section, you've got two to three key myths. And within the myths, we've got a host of incredible objects from across the young V&A, but also the V&A's collection. Not only talk about the events that happen in the story, but also are inspired by the story. Walking around the long room where the exhibition is held, there are a plethora of eye-catching and recognisable items on display. From tiny Sylvanian family toys, televisions hanging on the walls playing award-winning video games, to an original print of Hokusai's The Great Wave of Kanagawa, it's clear how intertwined folklore is into Japan's modern public consciousness. Even some government symbols are developed from these stories too. In Japanese mythology, the catfish is responsible for causing earthquakes. It's a mud-dwelling fish. As it moves, it agitates the silt underneath it. And so in Japanese mythology, it's been associated with it. And you also have the people of Tokyo uh, responding because the catfish is such a capricious uh, creature that it, you don't know what it will create. It's unpredictable. But they've used the same icon, the same image of a catfish into their disaster prevention logos. And so what I love is the fact that you're using an ancient myth to then warn people and to um, identify uh, you know, uh, disasters and making sure that it's warning people for the future. And it's a cartoon-looking catfish, so it's something that's friendly and it's taking something that is unpredictable and terrifying and then making it into something that is tangible and understandable for younger audiences and that's what I think the Japanese do so well. They get the sense of kawaii, this incredible technology, but they do it in such a responsible and caring way. Of course, the collection would not be complete without a display of manga. Katie shows me one of her highlights of the exhibition, the little manga room. We wanted to reflect what it would be like 
to love manga and to be kind of uh, cocooned by it because it gives a sense of community both manga and anime you know these are incredible forms of artwork and that these aren't just loved by children that this is something that continues throughout your life so we created the wallpaper we have two works that are on the screen of two emerging artists manga artists we have pieces from a eight-year-old uh, called Nikki uh, and she created her own Pokemon-inspired Pokedex and her own creations. We have her first Squirtle as well, which she used to bring to school every day in her backpack, and more modern Pikachu as well. And then one piece on the Vans, uh, Akami, classic Game Boys from uh, the collection, but also making that link with Nintendo's history by having the playing cards. So Nintendo first created playing cards and then it moved into electronics. So it's had a long history of being a playful entertainment company and we wanted to reflect that in that display. I think they have captured that sense of excitement and adventure and innovation in their designs and in their characters. They're so playful and like that sense of mischievousness that you get in yokai which are demons also translate into lots of their characters lots of their manga stories and it's that weaving in of what is unexpected and innovative that i think resonates and why it has a global uh, following and and why it continues to, to attract people young and old it is of course all these elements that make japan such a strong soft powerhouse and why japanese culture resonates with so many of us around the globe That was Monica Lillis, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Charles Hecker and Patricia Cohen. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listening.